This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at the high school dropout crisis and the dismantling of the social safety net in Philadelphia. My guest is Nikhil Goyle, a sociologist and policymaker who served as senior policy advisor on education and children for Senator Bernie Sanders. The high school dropout crisis is an issue that requires us to account for not just what's happening in the school, but the larger political economy and the neighborhood at large. And it was also important to account for historical processes and legacies that help produce the conditions that exist in the neighborhood. Nikhil's new book is Live to See the Day, Coming of Age in American Poverty. Nikhil Goyle, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks for having me. So could you paint a picture for the listener who might not know too much about Philadelphia? Could you paint a picture of Kensington neighborhood, the Kensington neighborhood in Philadelphia? Sure. So Kensington is a neighborhood of Philadelphia, the poorest large city uh, in the United States. It's a neighborhood that holds the largest open-air drug market on the East Coast, where the most pure and cheapest heroin is sold. It's also a neighborhood that has some of the highest poverty, uh, incarceration, and food insecurity rates in the city. It's a place of great joy as well as a place of great suffering. And, and to me, it is physical manifestation of the major crises facing the United States from economic inequality to mass incarceration to deeply entrenched racial divides and inequalities. It's an incredible place while still very much so affected by some of these social and economic policies. What first drew you to Kensington? So I first started visiting Kensington in 2015. I was interested in writing about the high school dropout crisis. And I had reached out to a friend of mine who runs an organization called Big Picture Learning, which has dozens of public student-centered schools around the United States and the world. And so Andrew Frischman had recommended I visit El Centro de Estudiantes, an alternative last chance high school in Kensington. And I thought I was going to write a story about a couple of these kids, their teachers, and maybe uh, interview a couple of folks in the community and, and, and call it a day. But it ended up becoming a much larger project. Over time, I realized that I, one, the high school dropout crisis is an issue that requires us to account for not just what's happening in the school, but the larger political economy and the neighborhood at large. And it was also important to account for historical processes and legacies that help produce the conditions that exist in the neighborhood. And so eventually as part of my research, when I was in grad school and beyond, it became the centerpiece for how I was beginning to understand and grapple with sociological concepts and theories and and ultimately, you know, the lives of these young people and their families. So in Kensington then, so, you know, like what schooling options are available to families? In Philadelphia, you know, there's traditional neighborhood, uh, public neighborhood schools. There are charter schools, cyber charter schools, alternative schools. It's kind of an entree of, of various options that families can send their children to. You know, what often happens, especially for the charter schools, they're usually from for middle and high school students. And what you'll find is the neighborhood school is the parents don't feel comfortable sending their kid there. They might be might have low test scores, a lot of violence. 
underperformance, among other issues. And so they're looking for better options. And so, you know, a, a child may apply to a charter school and, and, and they may get in based on a lottery system or, or what have you. And then the alternative system, which is where I spend most of my time conducting research, is a system usually that ends up getting kids after they've been pushed out of the traditional system, whether it's the neighbor schools or the, the charter schools. And so that's mm-hmm. usually, it could be their second, third, or even fourth or beyond school that they've attended. And that's where much of my research was conducted. And we'll dig into that a little bit with looking at one individual that you really followed for quite some time. But just to give listeners a sense, you know, how do these schooling options compare to neighborhoods next to or near Kensington that are also still in Philadelphia, but are probably or might be predominantly white? Sure. There's a great inequality in American school financing. And you see that manifested, you know, not just from the physical condition of school buildings, but the way teachers are paid, the type of curriculum that is offered, whether kids get recess or even access to a playground, and then obviously some of the kind of pedagogical practices within classrooms themselves. You know, the Philadelphia, as I mentioned, is, you know, the poorest large city in America and has been for quite a number of years. And you can look at the surrounding suburbs of the city. And, you know, you look at you know, Lower Marion, for example, which spends, you know, tens of thousands of dollars more per pupil than the Philadelphia School District. And, and it's very obvious when you actually spend time in those places that those are schools generally for affluent, largely white and Asian students, whereas the Philadelphia school system largely educates, you know, low-income kids, working-class kids, African-American, Latino, and white. And so, they're, you know, the, the populations that they serve are, are very different. And obviously, the types of experiences that young people have in each system are radically different. And, you know, Jonathan Kozel, you know, a great American education writer and has, you know, wrote a book a number of years ago called Savage Inequalities, where he spent time looking at, you know, schools in East St. Louis and schools in, in leafy suburbs. You know, there's a, a great discrepancy that is found when you spend time in, in those places. And so that financial inequality, is that because of the way the, the funding model of schools based on local property taxes? Is that the issue? Unlike many other countries in the world, the United States has generally, you know, to its roots and has had a very local driven education system. That was a, you know, education is not, you know, mentioned as, as part of the Bill of Rights or in the Constitution. It, you know, it's, it's a generally be considered a state and local matter from the inception of the United States. And when compulsory schooling was began in Massachusetts and, and spread beyond that in the 19th century, it was, you know, local property taxes became the basis for funding your local school. And that has remained with us ever since. So in the United States, generally speaking, 45 to 47% of, of a school's funding comes from local property taxes. Another 45, 47% comes from the state. And then about 8% comes from the federal government. And obviously that depends state by state. Some states are more regressive and they underfund public education. And so the local property taxes and the local share ends up being larger. And other states have a have the reverse, the ones that fund public education better. You know, it goes to show, think about that 8%, federal government has a largely small role to play, especially in financing matters. You have the Title I program, which is, you know, a federal program that was originally designed to give funding to high poverty school districts. You know, there's a long-standing debate and some research to indicate that's not actually happening. It, you know, there's it's not being targeted in the most effectively. But, you know, there's a small share and it really goes down to the state and local level. Okay, so this is why we can start seeing some of these vast sort of savage inequalities, to use Jonathan Kozel's term. 
between neighborhoods and between schools based on these sort of local property taxes. So let's turn to the schools that you, the, the people you were following. One of the students you followed over time was a man named Ryan, a student named Ryan. And we sort of first meet Ryan in a school. He's sort of goofing around with his buddies and sort of youth gets the better of them, let's say, and they end up lighting a trash can on fire inside the school. What happens to Ryan as a result of that moment in his life? Sure. You know, I start the book off with that scene of Ryan and his friends starting a fire in a trash can. You know, they were in middle school at the time. Ryan was uh, 12 years old, you know, just a few weeks shy of, of turning 13. And, you know, it was just a harrowing experience for this young person. He you know, eventually gets interrogated by school resource officers and school administrators, along with a couple other of his classmates. And then he and another boy get arrested by the Philadelphia police officers and get sent to juvenile detention centers, one in the city itself and then one outside in the suburbs later on. It is just so remarkable um, to think about the shame that this young person had to endure, you know, all the way from his experience where a guard gives him uh, underwear that is stained to the fact that he has to, you know, eat food that is just completely unsanitary to the fact that he might have to shower in a bathroom where there are no curtains. You know, just the small, the examples of shame and, and indignities accumulate over the course of this, over the course of Ryan's time uh, in juvenile detention. And then he wasn't even able to speak with his mother and didn't even know if his mother was going to pick him up. And so Ryan eventually, you know, goes through the juvenile justice system, comes back home, goes through, you know, a cycle of uh, juvenile uh, court uh, hearings. Um, and then eventually he gets expelled from Grover Washington, his middle school, and gets sent and transferred to a alternative disciplinary school called Community Education Partners, which is run by a for-profit company. And there he experiences and, and endures an incredibly dehumanizing, criminalizing experience in that educational setting. The punishment was so extreme for a child, right, to call the police and then for the child to be treated almost like an adult in a prison system. I mean, it was just, it was sort of surreal to imagine even reading it, you know, reading it was surreal. I can't imagine what it actually was like to go through as a child. And as you said, he ends up in this school, the, the community education partners. I am from the United States, but I never heard of CEP. How widespread is CEP, community education partners? It's, as you said, it's a for-profit alternative school, but is this a Philadelphia only thing or is this a system that is, is much wider? CEP, it no longer exists, but when it did exist in the nineties and into the two thousands, you know, it was a for-profit company that operated disciplinary schools around the country and, and they basically the CEOs and the executives gave this very clear pitch to you know, school administrators and politicians that you have kids who are disruptive and they misbehave. Let's take that burden of educating them off your plate and we'll deal with them. We'll you know, put them in a school where they're segregated away from the general population and we will make sure that they are no longer messing up your test scores and your educational performance and your nutritional classrooms. And so CEP got its first co couple of contracts in Texas. That's where it really got its footing. You know, Houston and Dallas got, you know, multi-million dollar contracts to operate alternative disciplinary schools. And then the model was exported around the country. You know, Philadelphia was one of the next destinations and they gave CEP a contract in, 
in 2000s. It was the first you know contract that was given to an alternative for-profit school, mm-hmm. and they began getting students. You know, they were students were funneled from the from juvenile detention into CEP. They were funneled from traditional schools, and they were expelled and sent to CEP. And then they set up more and more schools over time, creating this pipeline in Philadelphia. Uh, and Ryan was on the back end of CEP's tenure in Philadelphia in you know, 2009 or so. And he was put into an environment where you know kids walk with their hands behind their backs. They have uniforms. They're treated literally as prisoners. It is mm-hmm. incredibly dehumanizing. Allude to no adult, sh- um, that adult treated like an adult. I, I don't even say that adults should be treated in this way, let alone a child. That's what I would you know argue. And so, you know, the, the ways in which that they were subjecting these young people to these very punishing rituals and routines, Mm. I argue, is a form of, you know, not just racism and exploitation, but a way to create pariahs in our society as people who are exiled and and treated as disposable uh, and not as fully human. Mm. And I think that is, Ryan, unfortunately, became a textbook uh, victim of those structures. So what was his experience like at CEP? He talks about the constant fights and every day there was, almost every day there was a fight at school involving a student or a staff member and the staff members did very little to intervene and, and, and prevent that from happening. He talked about the very rote instruction, you know, just copying lessons from a board and filling out packets of material. There was no really engaging learning that was happening. And also, I just want to mention, you know, they were stuck in, they call them communities. So you entered a community in the morning and you left the community at the end of the day. There was no movement, freedom of movement. You know, it was designed to keep people in one place, you know, similar to, as you might imagine, in a jail or or prison, keep people in a set location. I argue that it was a form of warehousing. Here's a contract. Let's warehouse these kids and, you know, we'll deal with them. You know, Ryan talks a lot about the abuse and the violence that he was subjected to during the course of the months he was at the school. So I don't want to give away the whole story about Ryan, but eventually, you know, lots of twists and turns as you sort of recount in, in the book. But eventually Ryan ends up at this other alternative school that you mentioned at the top of this show called El Centro, I think is the name. What is El Centro and how is it different from CEP as an alternative school? So where CEP has metal detectors and school resource officers, also known as police officers for educational settings, punitive zero tolerance discipline, no freedom of movement, uniforms, you know, hyper-criminalized environments. El Centro is like radically, was radically different. You know, there's no security guards, no metal detectors, no required uniform. They had instead restorative justice, small classes, a responsive school climate, real authentic relationships between students and teachers and staff, a real robust counseling uh, service and, and opportunities for young people to work hand in hand with restore, you know, restorative resiliency specialists and restorative justice specialists. Um, you know, it was, it was a place where young people could feel safe, they could feel respected, and where their voices were heard. They had a lot of autonomy over the types of projects and educational experiences that they engaged in, you know, El Centro used the community and the city of Philadelphia as their classroom. Two days a week, you know, kids would spend time in internships, in businesses, in museums, and in libraries, in courtrooms, all types of public institutions and, and spaces for them to gain social capital, learn, get job training skills, and learn how to operate within a labor market. And, uh, you know, that, that it's very driven by big picture learning's approach of real world education. You know, if we're going to prepare young people for the real world, why why not at least expose them to it and let them be embedded in it from an early age? And, you know, these were young people that were de- 
dealing with a clear educational challenges that, you know, they were coming in, you know, very far behind on grade level in reading and math. And, and, you know, they had racked up dozens and dozens of absences and, and, um, over their, in their previous school, school years and experiences. You know, these were students who, you know, were not your students who were generally high performers. These were, you were dealing with a population that was already, I would say, educationally traumatized, that had dealt with a lot of educational trauma and instability. And mm-hmm. they were all in one place and you had to manage and, and try to help these students for, you know, a short period of time that they were at the school until they hopefully graduated. So what was Ryan's experience like at, at El Centro? He talked about, you know, just the fact that he no longer felt like he was a criminal in the school. And that was a point and a comment that many students made to me that I, I don't feel like I'm in jail when I'm at the school. You know, a number of students had come from schools like CEP and Mastery Charter School, ones where they had very punitive zero tolerance discipline stalking them and every, stalking their every move. Mm. And El Centro was very different. And so Ryan gets into friendships with his advisors, aka his teachers. And, you know, he, begins to really unpack the struggles and experiences of his life in restorative circles, warning circles. They have them with his peers. And then his internships where he began to spend time in the community and and meet and engage with mentors. You know, those were the types of experiences that I think really engaged him and showed him that school could be different. It could be a place where you actually enjoy going to every day. You know, I talk a lot of, you know, later on in the book, I talk about some of his struggles at El Centro and how life gets in the way, you know, his girlfriend gets pregnant and then, you know, he's dealing with uh, his mom having uh, breast cancer and his stepfather, you know, getting arrested you know, after selling drugs on the streets. You know, there's a lot of turbulence in his life that derail his experience in school. And, and I talk about, you know, his, his troubles and, and the fact that it took him many, many years to ultimately graduate high school. And so I talk about that quest for Ryan and a number of youth as they try to, you know, get this very critical credential that at least the way they view it, a high school diploma and just the struggles that are along the way that they have to endure. You know, there was a really moving part where Ryan gave a public speech for the first time, sort of in support of El Centro, not to be closed down. And he he sort of, you know, spoke about what the school meant to him, but it really wasn't even about necessarily what he was saying, but it was about this opportunity to speak publicly and, and how that was a rather empowering moment, it seemed like, for him to realize that he could be part of sort of social change. You know, there's a scene in the book where Ryan you know, testifies before the Philadelphia City Council. El Centro and other alternative schools uh, in the city were on the chopping block. There were has been the case in Philadelphia for a number of years. There was a threat of budget cuts and the alternative schools were at risk of being fully eliminated. And so there was a show of force from the entire network uh, where students and, and teachers and staff and parents, you know, went down to City Hall and protested the pending uh, closures. And, you know, Ryan stood up first, you know, this this kid, um, you know, this very this teenager standing up in City Hall and and telling them just a few years after going through the ordeal at Grover, Washington and CP that how dare you try to close this school? This is the first time I've ever enjoyed going to school. And, you know, I, I no longer, I don't feel like a prisoner at this school. I feel respected. I have, I've made friends. I've become close with my advisors. You know, the idea that I would have to go to a new school next school year and try to find a new school, it, it just sounds incredibly stressful and one where I would never want to have to deal with because it's unlikely that I would find another school that would fit my very unique needs. And so he, you know, he talks about his experience at El Centro in the, in this testimony. I, I was just blown away by it and not just his, his speech, but other students talking about 
how much pride they felt as students. And I, you know, I mentioned there's this quote in, uh, in that section from uh, David Bromley, who founded El Centro. And he was, you know, remarking that when he saw his students at City Hall, he was saying that I've never seen this many students in my, in the, in the actual school building than, than they are today. But so the, you know, it goes to show how much ownership they felt over their school and, and the pride uh, that they had. It's so, you know, just through Ryan's schooling experience that you document, his two vastly different experiences between CEP and El Centro. It's just so strange in a way that a school system that one school system, the Philadelphia school system, could have such vastly different alternative schools operate simultaneously. Like, how on earth did that happen? Because they, they seem to be just polar opposites. That's such a good point, actually, because it's, it is remarkable to think about that. You, you have in the same system a school like CEP and a school like El Centro. And I think it draws from the way the alternative schools are, their, at least their relationship with the school district. You know, they're not, you know, you have charter schools, which are their kind of own entity and body, and they have their own set of regulations. But the alternative schools, their providers have been given contracts by the district. And so, you know, a number of them could be for profit or they could be nonprofit like big picture. And, and so I think it, that gives way to the diversity of options. And you, you can even see that in the system today with, you know, the more progressive student centered approach like El Centro and the more punitive approach like mastery charter school. So it really, I think, depends on the provider. The other point I would make is that I think the administrators of the school district have given that freedom to providers. And I think there's been a lot of, to me, you know, that is a critique of, of their decision-making where they have allowed this kind of wild west of alternative school mm. providers to just operate for many, many years. And, you know, CEP should have never existed in Philadelphia, point blank. It should have never existed in Philadelphia or any part, any city in this country. And even other schools, I would even dare to say that the punitive ones in Philadelphia should not exist because they are criminalizing children. They are pushing them out and they are only preparing them either for incarceration or low wage uh, employment that is docile in nature. You know, I think they're doing a great disservice to the children of Philadelphia and their families. And so I, you know, I, I think th there's a lot that, that they can learn. Learn, uh, in terms of emulating the practices of El Centro, not just in the alternative system, but frankly, well before the ki children even get to the alternative. And so in Philadelphia today, are there alternative schools still in existence? Yes. You know, the same system is still in place as, as it's existed for the past 15, 20 years. Is El Centro still there? Yes, El Centro is still there. It has moved from its location at Dauphin Street in Kensington and has moved a little bit north. It's, they've been going through a series of relocations. They were a little bit further north and now they're going to move again. And so they've been kind of all over North Philly, but still thriving. And, and you know, one point just mm -hmm. to mention is Emmanuel Karem, formerly known as Emmanuel, is a staff member at El Centro. They are overseeing the internship and real world learning experiences at the school. So, you know, near the end of your book, you have this question that you raise. I'm going to just read it out. It says, how does multiracial liberal democracy reconcile with the violence meted out against people who live in the Kensingtons all over the United States? So how does it? How does liberal democracy do that? I think it's a question I pose because the conditions in Kensington, if we are to truly reckon with them and what they represent, it requires us to think about how does these zones of abjection, these zones of great suffering exist 
in a country that prizes itself as a land of freedom and opportunity. Because those two things are very antithetical. They don't, you know, th- there's a conflict there, right? And I think that, you know, it goes to a question of how truly liberal and how truly democratic is this country if, if some people are condemned to lives of great suffering and misery and other people get to live lives of dignity and opportunity. I think, you know, and, and you can just see this so clearly in Philadelphia where, you know, I, I start the book off with a portrait of Society Hill, a leafy, very wealthy white neighborhood just a few miles south of Kensington, you know, where, where children live up to the age of you know, 87, 88. And uh, compared with, you know, Kensington, where kids live up to the age of 71, you know, there's just a massive, stark contrast, not just in life expectancy, but on all health and economic indicators and just a few miles away. And I think that should give us great pause about how we talk about, you know, political concepts of liberal democracy when those two situations are literally almost side by side. Um, and what that means for what we need to do as Americans to demand upon the government to provide a basic social safety net for all our people, not just for those who are wealthy and well off. Well, Nikhil Goyle, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Congratulations on your new book. It really was a fantastic read. And I recommend it to everyone to just get beautiful portrait into what schooling is like in some deeply impoverished areas and, and what choices that students and parents and families have to make to, you know, navigate this complex, awful sort of system that has been created. So thanks so much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you so much for having me. Nikhil Goyle is a sociologist and policymaker in the USA. His new book is entitled Live to See the Day. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you like what we've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Fatih Octus, Obafemi Angunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Metza, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shocktap Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.